Good morning, church. My name is Jordan Thigpen. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you uh, today. A uh, couple of things on the front end. Uh, one, uh, there was some bad weather, I guess, in the first gathering, and the lights started to flicker, and so did the HVAC. So we were about to find out how well the Lord had blessed my vocal cords to fill up a room this size. So I feel a need to prepare you in case that happens again, and I have to preach without a, a, a microphone or, or whatever. We'll, we'll see what the church felt like about 300 years ago, I guess. Uh, but the other thing, a little, a little also non-scripted uh, thing that I felt like the Lord put on my heart this morning to get started. Um, I've been reading a book of, of a pastor that I really admire, and I've read it before, but I'm reading it again. It's, a bi- it's his biography. And he used to uh, preach to a, a church that was about 3,600 people. It would seat 3,600. In the standing room only, it would just be this massive audience and course, no microphone, but he, he would do this thing to where he would just preach this incredibly long sermon, and then immediately he would walk off the stage and go and sit in what they called a parlor, um, and what would happen is that people would, however many people out of that, however many people were in attendance that day, wanted to come by and just spill their heart to this pastor and just share whatever was going on, um, he would just sit there and listen and advise and counsel and shepherd and love and listen. And it just, it just is a, it just is mind blowing to me. And it was a real, it was a real labor. He loved his people so, so much. And he would spend so much energy preaching and being with people and caring for people. Uh, But it reminded me a lot of what we've been talking about. It was a ministry really built kind of around one person, though he did a lot to equip many people Uh, A lot of the Sunday ministry really uh, lived and died by him. And he died at like 58 of that, of such burden and of course, bad health and different things. But as I was reading that, what I was thinking about, especially during this Thanksgiving season, this holiday season, as we wrap up getting closer to the end of 2019, I just wanted to say a sincere thank you to our connect group leaders Uh, We're not a heavily programmed church if you spend any amount of time here of having lots of different things going on. We we gather on Sundays and we worship together and we we teach God's word. But the primary thing we do other than that is meet in connect groups. And our connect group leaders take such such a heavy burden on in shepherding the lives of people in those connect groups. So I'm not gonna ask our connect group leaders to stand up, but I just felt like what the Lord wanted me to say this morning is just a very sincere thank you to our connect group leaders. You guys have, yeah. You guys have taken on many changes in 2019. You guys have taken on many changes over the years of, of ministry here at, at Connection. And you guys always do it with such grace and such kindness and such love Uh, And you you really own that ministry. And I'm just incredibly grateful as a newer pastor on staff to see uh, the way in which you love and care for the people that call Connection home. So with that said, uh, if I'm not, again, I'm not gonna ask you to stand up, but if you know a Connect Group leader or uh, you've been impacted by a Connect Group leader, I just want you to hold that person in your mind. Uh, I wanna pray for our Connect Group leaders and pray as we get into the service today or get into the sermon today. Um, I just want to pray for them specifically, and if it, I just want you to pray with me for them if they've had, if you, if, if, even if you're not in a connect group, if you just know a connect group leader, would you just pray uh, for them along with me?
Jesus, thank you so much for um, shedding your blood that we could have a relationship with you. God, thank you for sending your spirit to unify the church, but then even more, giving people gifts that they could serve the body of Christ. Thank you for leaders, for men and women who shepherd this church so well and extend care and love, Lord, and being the hands and feet of Jesus to one another in our daily lives. Lord, I pray for them, pray that you would increase our connect group leaders. Lord, the ones that we have, that you would grow them, they would feel a season of refreshing as they go into this holiday season. As we go into 2020, I pray that you would send us more connect group leaders, Lord, that you would send us more missionaries and church planters and pastors and leaders and connect group team leaders and so many things that we can continue to reach people for the gospel, Lord, to, to tell people the good news of your name. Lord, I pray for this sermon, Lord, that you would get me out of the way as I proclaim it, and that the one who is proclaimed would be clear today, that Jesus would be magnified through our time together. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 6. That's where we'll kind of start off, but I want to introduce what we've been doing a little bit. If you've not been with us for a while, maybe this is your first time with us, if you haven't been here in, in a few months, uh, we've been in a series called A Clear Call. Uh, and in that, the subtitles changed a little bit. We've talked about a clear call to a couple different things. Uh, and I was talking to the nine, the nine o'clock service with this, is that calling is kind of a funny word, isn't it? It's kind of, we, we use that word for lots of different things. Uh, we, we use that to talk about the way that the, the career that we choose, the job that we choose, the spouse that we choose, the hobbies that we're involved in, lots of different things that we use. Uh, for example, it's a silly example, but uh, one calling that we all have all across this room is to like brush our teeth and to uh, have good hygiene. Like, yes, thus saith the Lord, all of us, we all have callings to brush our teeth, right? Like that's just true for all of us. Uh, so, like calling is just another way to say, what, how are we going to use our time? We are going to use some of our time to brush our teeth and have good hygiene and, and things like that. Or we get a little more specific. Like I, I feel called to be a lawyer. I feel called to be uh, a pastor in my case. Or I feel called to uh, be a meat inspector, whatever it is, football coach, whatever it may be. We use calling to kind of talk about, this is how I'm going to spend my time. And so what we've been doing over this series is considering, is there anything in Scripture that would indicate how we as followers of Jesus should or should not use our time? And what we've seen over the course of these couple of series is that we see four clear calls for the way Christians are, are supposed to use their time. Number one is we have this clear call to be followers of Jesus. So not just like passive, like card carrying members of here's my, here's my card for the Jesus club. Like I'm in that. No, like an active discipling relationship with Jesus where you're engaged in this relationship with Jesus. Like a clear call to, like we see in the gospels where the disciples leave what they were doing in order to follow Jesus. They had a clear call to follow Jesus. Next, we looked at a clear call to grow in our identity in Jesus. 
So as we see the, the disciples, they left, some of them were fishermen, right? And they leave that behind in order to grow in their identity and what it meant for them to follow Jesus. And we looked at that in a series for what does it look like for us as Christians that call Connection Church home to grow in our identity in following Jesus. Next, we looked at uh, what does it mean to have a clear call to the people of Jesus? So on the one hand, we've got our me and Jesus reality, our growing in my identity in following Jesus. But we also have this we and Jesus reality that if we're gonna be called to follow Jesus, we're also gonna be called to be a part of the people of Jesus. And so the illustration I used at uh, the 9 a.m. was this, is that there's no way I could like serve on staff in, in good faith if I had a particular friendship with Brandon, but like Reed and Jackson and Susan and Dake, I wasn't so crazy about. Like I just was not a fan of those guys, but me and Brandon are cool. That's what it, that's what it means to say, well, I really love Jesus. Jesus is, is I'm good with that. But the people of Jesus, the church, it's just a bunch of hypocrites. It's just a bunch of people that I don't care for. What we saw in that, as we looked in that series, is that if we're gonna be a follower of Jesus, we're also gonna be called to the people of Jesus. And then lastly, this is what we've been in recently in this series, is we have a clear call to Jesus' mission. If we're going to follow Jesus and grow in our identity in Jesus and be a part of the people of Jesus, we also got to be a part of the mission that Jesus calls us to. And we're going to consider what that means today. But I wanted to say this, it's as we've segmented off these series, we've been looking at these four different things. What I wanted to be clear on is that each of these things, growing in these things, it's not like, well, let me grow my cotton field, then let me grow this corn field, then let me grow this rye field. They're not like four distinctly individual things, right? So like as we grow in our identity, we're also growing in our, uh, in our embracing the mission of Jesus and growing as a part of the people of Jesus. And one of the ways that I, I illustrated that is, or what we really came to see in that is that having a particular love for following Jesus without a love for the people of Jesus was in fact spiritual immaturity. What we saw in that was to have one without also growing in the other just reveals a level of immaturity in us. And here's a silly illustration for that is that my little girl, is my, my youngest or my oldest daughter, she's three, and she is the most loving individual I've ever seen. So my, my getting off of work and coming home looks something like this. Key into the door, unlock it, turn the doorknob, walk in, setting the bag down as I come in. And before usually the bag hits the floor, I hear it coming, just running down the hallway, daddy! And she just runs up, she throws her arms around my neck, She's like, oh, daddy, I missed you so much. I'm so glad you're home. I just love you. Thank you for being home. And I'm like, I love you too, baby. Just, I love you so much. So glad I'm home. Here's all my money and everything I have. Just always love me this much. This is amazing. And she has a particular affection for me as her father in that moment. Fast forward maybe an hour and a half, two hours later, when we have uh, turned off Disney Plus and uh, we are now just kind of doing some winding down, getting ready for bed uh, type stuff. And our youngest Charlotte, who's eight months old, uh, reaches over and maybe like touches a toy that was or is McClendon's. And uh, we start hearing a little bit of a different tune from McClendon at that part, right? It's words like, 
No, that's mine. And what we see in that moment is a level of immaturity that you would expect from a three-year-old, right? Like, it's not, it's, it's, it's just a silly form of immaturity. It's not a huge deal. It's not a deal breaker. Uh, but what we do see in that moment is that she can have in one moment a particular love and affection for the father without a particularly, a particularly equal love for the people of the father. And this is what I love about Jesus is that what we see is that that uneven level of immaturity is not a sign that we should kick people out of the family. What we see is that she has the freedom, my, my little girl has the freedom to exhibit that level of immaturity because her identity is secure. She is my daughter and she will remain my daughter. For us with Jesus, as we're continuing to grow, this cycle of growing in these four uh, clear calls, we are going to have seasons where we cycle up in maturity in one and maybe cycle down in maturity in another, but it continues to build and grow and increase. Uh, and that's not to say that along the way we won't do serious harm to our growth. We won't, it's not to say that we won't make bad decisions that harm our growth, but sometimes we are gonna feel, I love coming on Sundays. I, I just, I love being with the people of Jesus, but my time and growing my identity with Jesus it's maybe lagging a little behind. But then this love for the people of Jesus seems to bring up this identity in Jesus. But maybe we're also struggling to embrace the mission of Jesus. But what we see is that over time, we have to maintain this clear call to grow holistically in all of these calls, to not let one lag behind. Why? And that's what we're gonna talk about today. Because there's a mission. And I wanted to look at scripture and think through something that I saw this week that I think really points to this reality. One thing I love about scripture is that it does not seek to like cover up or mask the imperfections of some of our heroes of the faith. Peter's the one that stands out to me, right? Like he's, he's truly like a buffoon up until he's not, right? Like he just is doing all this embarrassing stuff. And it's like, I can really identify with Peter. And then all of a sudden he's like this powerhouse in the church and it's awesome. But what I love is that scripture doesn't cover any of that up. It doesn't mask any of that. It highlights this journey for the disciples as they grew in maturity. And I wanna look at Mark chapter six. We're gonna look at a lot of the chapter. If you wanna kind of follow along as I kind of tell the story of it so we don't spend, I don't wanna read it word for word. I wanna move through it like this. What we see is that in Mark 6, the disciples have now been called to Jesus and he has, he, they have been with him for a time. He has called them to himself and now he is commissioning them out. They're gonna begin engaging, if you're tracking with me on these four clear calls, they're gonna begin engaging the mission of Jesus. And so he sends them out. And I love the picture of this. He's like, don't take an extra change of clothes. Don't take a money bag. Don't take a staff. Uh, they're like, dad, Jesus, can I like, can I take uh, a pair of sandals? Can we wear shoes when we go on this mission? And he's like, all right, you can wear shoes, but you're not taking all of the other stuff. You're gonna, you're gonna survive on grit and do ministry. Uh, and they begin to go out two by two and they begin to call people to repentance. This is 6.12. He says, so they went out and preached that people should repent. 
And they were driving out many demons, anointing many sick people with oil and healing. In other words, they're beginning to do the ministry of Jesus. They're, they're, they're engaging the mission of Jesus and they're being fruitful. All signs indicate, man, these guys are really called. This is going awesome. Fast forward to verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. They're like, Jesus, look at this. Look at what we did. Listen to this story. John did this. Peter did this. It was incredible. Everything you said we could do, we did. And Jesus is like, come on, guys. I love it. That's great. You guys have been working. Let's go away and rest. Let's go and be with the Father. The crowds are coming again. There's going to be more ministry. Let's get in the boat and let's cross the lake. Let's go to a season of rest. They're like, all right, sweet, let's do it. And they get in the boat and they cross and the crowd chases them down and they get there. And what we begin to see is that the disciples' expectations have been defied. What they thought was gonna, be, was gonna occur is like, sweet, we're gonna have some time with Jesus. We're gonna have time with the Father. We've been working hard. We've been going about. Now it's time to rest. Oh, but there's a crowd. There's more ministry to be done. There's more of Jesus' mission to be accomplished. And what we see is that Jesus begins to minister to these people. He begins to teach them. And it says about 5,000 men, which we can guess is upwards of probably 15,000 people, including women and children. And he's teaching them and it begins to get towards nighttime. It begins to get late in the day. Maybe Jesus turned off Disney Plus for the disciples. And they are coming to Jesus and saying, all right, Jesus, let's send the crowd away. It's getting late. They're gonna be hungry. We're hungry. Let's send them away. And Jesus says, you feed them. You feed them. And he's like, well, what do you want us to do, Jesus? You want us to go spend 200 denarii worth of, or two, buy 200 denarii worth of bread and feed them? It's like, no, just what do you have right now? And he, they said, well, we got a couple pieces of bread and a couple fish. And what we begin to see is that these grumbling disciples begin to see a miracle occurring. What, what the way the text describes it, the language is that the, the bread is continuing to multiply at the hands of Jesus. The miracle is occurring in Jesus' hands. Not that like bread's like levitating out of his palm or something like that, but it would have been clear to people that as he's breaking it, it's occurring that Jesus is providing this bread for people that the miracle is occurring at a man who is completely different than the rest of the world. And there's so much that we could spend time there thinking about that. But what Jesus does at the end here is he sends the disciples on. He's like, all right, you guys get in the boat. I'll catch up. And Jesus continues to minister to the people. He continues to minister to the people. And that the disciples go on ahead. Jesus takes some time. He gets with the Father and he prays. And then he's gonna go catch up with the disciples. And here comes Jesus across the lake. And he's coming. And what I, what I love about this text and what I, what I want us to see as we think about this cycle of, of repeating and growing in our, in our spiritual maturity is that what, what, what is interesting about Mark, the book of Mark, is that that gospel is really fast, right? We're here and then we're here and then we're there and then we're here and then we're there. And next thing, Jesus is crucified. It's a book that moves really fast, which tells us that when he slows down and gives us some detail, we need to pay attention. And this little detail stands out to me here at the end as they see Jesus. Let's start in 49. When they saw him walking on the sea, 
They thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke with them and said, have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. They were completely astounded. Not like, no, Jesus does that kind of thing. So no, completely astounded because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. Can you imagine? 15,000 people fed from five loaves and the people closest to Jesus says they didn't understand. They were astounded that Jesus by himself could do something like walk on water. And what we begin to see is that this is good news for us because if those who were literally the closest to Jesus and following him could misunderstand and have moments of immaturity and see that they could have a particular fruitfulness in Jesus' mission while at the same time not at all representing the identity of Jesus, if the disciples can do that, there's hope for us. There's hope for us that we can go through these seasons of maturity and Jesus doesn't push us away. What begins to emerge is this reality. Just like there's no condemnation for McClendon, when I call her to grow in maturity, to love her sister, there's also no condemnation for us. In other words, this reality begins to emerge. There's freedom for us as followers of Jesus from condemnation. Right, and that's the greatest news in the world, that we are free from the grips of sin. But this other reality begins to emerge. Just as we are free from the condemnation of sin, we're also free for conviction. So we're free from condemnation from sin, yes. But what we see is we're also free to experience conviction. We are free to have Jesus call us on our junk. We are free for Jesus to point out the areas in our life in a loving way that we don't feel condemnation, but we do feel conviction. Jesus never shied away from calling the disciples to maturity. And I just, I just asked the question, why? Why, if, this, if the Bible, this document that is meant to convey truth about Jesus that transcends millenniums, why wouldn't it cover up some of the failures of our heroes? Why wouldn't it just seek to be as convincing as possible? Because the people that come to Jesus were never meant to be perfect. He came for the sick, not the perfect. He came for those who needed healing. He came for the imperfect. And I love that about Jesus. He, the scriptures show us that Jesus had this affection to help people grow in their spiritual journey, to take on his identity, to take on his values. In other words, he was patient with people in their journey because he knew that there was a mission. He knew he had a goal that he was working toward. Think about this with Jesus. He knows all along where he's going, right? He knew that the cross was coming. And what I love is that he looks down this time, he looks down the corridor of time and says, I, can't, I don't need to get these guys ready enough just to watch me be crucified. I need to get these guys ready to build my church, which is evidence of us today as we gather in the name of Jesus. 
that Jesus looked down and he doesn't shy away from pointing out their immaturity because he knows there's a mission at stake. He knows there's more at stake than just hurting their feelings. Jesus had a clear goal that he is working toward with the disciples. And I saw, I saw a great example of this because we love this level of conviction in other areas of our life. I saw, I saw an example of this a few weeks ago. I was listening to this post-game interview of a football coach that I, I'm a particular fan of. And what was, you, you know, post-game interview kind of press conference stuff. It's just like quick, quick, quick. And, uh, and it's like platitudes, like, well, we just gotta work harder. We just gotta play tougher on defense. Gotta win the trenches, blah, 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 blah. Like just stuff that doesn't really mean anything other than we gotta play harder and I don't want a sound bite to wind up on YouTube. And what I loved is the interviewer asked this question and said, coach, what do you think about Jordan Davis? He really seems to be playing a lot better this year. Just a quick question. And he pauses and he says, you know, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's the case. He said, actually, Jordan Davis played a lot better last year. And I talked to Jordan Davis about this all the time. We have, what he's indicating is I have this clear relationship with this player. And I talked to him about this all the time. If Jordan Davis is gonna, and this is the line that stuck with me that I love. It says, if, if he's going to become the best player that he can be, he needs to make a daily commitment to excellence. Now, this is a guy that just changed the game, like just had a monster game. And he says, if he's gonna to get to the player that he could be, if he's gonna accomplish the mission of football that he can accomplish, he's gotta make a daily commitment to excellence. And if you're like me, you're like, oh, goosebumps. Oh, that's amazing. Tell me some more, coach. Okay, I will. Another player, he says, they say, coach, number seven made a big play. He had a big break up there at the end of the game. What'd you think about that? Well, actually he was in the wrong spot not like celebrating the fact that this guy made a big play. He, he holds this player to a standard. See, he's developed this identity of a football team and the people that are gonna be on that team need to take on that identity as they follow his leadership because he has a clear mission that he's trying to lead them to. And he says, if there were other players that could be in the proper leverage, there'd be guys playing above him. And he said this, and this stuck with me. He said, we need that player to get to a place where he values right execution over results. Oh, again, just goosebumps. Like that kind of stuff, just if that doesn't get your blood going, I mean, I'm ready to flip this podium right now. It gets me so fired up thinking about like, who would hold somebody to that level of excellence? Like who would hold somebody to that standard? And what I felt like, over the course of this week is that the Lord was saying to me, where is that fire in our relationship? Where is that commitment to excellence in our relationship in a very fatherly way? And I, and I wanna give that caveat because maybe you've only ever heard voices like that and they've only ever been condemning voices. Maybe you've only ever heard stern, sharp, degrading, stinging, condemning voices. What I want you to see is if you can see anything from Mark chapter six, that is not the tone of Jesus. And that's not what we want our tone to be as a church either. What you see in Jesus is a, is a love radiating from a perfect father as he calls these disciples to say, do you still not understand my son? Do you still not see? 
what I want us to see in that is that we have a long way to go. And if you feel condemnation from what I'm calling us to in this, I just want you to set that aside and see that the gospel frees us from condemnation, but it does free us for living in light of who we are. In other words, setting aside condemnation so that we can experience conviction in a godly way. And it hit me this week as I was thinking about this, that when I call McClendon, my three-year-old, to grow in maturity, it's loving, right? I'm, I'm not condemning her. I'm not seeking to push her out of my family. I want you to imagine this. If, if McClendon became passionate about ballet, let's put it in, in this term. If she became really passionate about ballet, by side note, she is passionate about ballet. And she said, daddy, 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 I wanna, I wanna do ballet. And then me, as her father said, uh, okay, you can go to the recital. You can go to the recital, but oh, I'm sorry, sweetie. I, I, we can't make time to take you to practice every week. Uh, and you know what? I, I don't even have time to pull up YouTube videos for you to watch so that you can learn ballet. And I'm not gonna get down on the floor to help you learn ballet, but you can go to the recital. I'm happy for you to go to the recital. I'll put, we'll put that on the calendar and you can go to the recital. In other words, she's not allowed to follow her ballet instructor or to grow in her identity as a ballerina or to be around other ballerinas. All the while, I'm expecting her to accomplish the mission of ballet. What that just sounds like is child abuse. You would boo me off of this stage so fast if that was the reality for me of the way I stewarded a little child and their passions. But in our faith, I, I think why we miss this aspect of our faith, why we love discipline and commitment and passion and dedication and sports and theater and our careers and our hobbies, I think why we bristle at our faith beckoning us to discipline and commitment is because we so often miss the mission of the church. In other words, we, we don't know what we're working toward or on the other side of that, we only focus on getting this mission accomplished and not following Jesus and not growing in our identity or being a part of the people of Jesus to help us in this mission. In other words, our spiritual maturity begins to become clear for why it matters because there's a mission. And I wanna come back to spiritual maturity a little at the end, but if you've been in church any amount of time, you've heard this word, right? Mission, 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 mission. If you're probably at your, at your job, if whatever career you are, you know, like missions and vision and values and all those types of words for uh, things that are put on boards in the CEO's office and never looked at again. But what is the mission of the church or what is missions? So let's play a little bit of a multi multiple choice game right here. Let's ask the question, what is missions? What is missions? Is it A, is it something only certain missionaries do in countries not named the United States of America? I know growing up in or being a part of other churches in different places and different times, uh, that's kind of what the feeling of missions is. It's these, these like ninja level Christians that move to 
uh, hard places on the other side of the world and tell people about Jesus, but that's what they do. What we do here is church, but what they do is missions. Is that how we define missions? Or is it B, is it just anything that Christians do? Is it digging wells in third world countries or work, just working your normal nine to five? Or is it giving a homeless person a sandwich? Is, is any of that and all of that missions? Or is it C, Christians engaging in intentional evangelism and discipleship with people that do not know Jesus? It is emphatically C from what we see from the weight of Scripture, what we see from Genesis 1.28 of go and multiply and fill the earth with those who bear my image and subdue it, God's original creation mandate. Fast forward to Matthew 28, this direct connection with go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit and teaching them all that I've commanded you, that great commission, that final marching orders of Jesus' command, Connected with Ephesians 4.12, that the church is meant to, uh, to uh, equip the saints for the work of ministry. It is every Christian engaged in intentional evangelism and the discipleship of people that do not know Jesus. Yes, we do need to send people like Shane Young to North Africa, and we want to champion him and celebrate him, and we want to support him in every way that we can. But that's not all that missions is. Missions is somebody working a nine to five and looking at the coworkers around them and saying, these people need to know the same hope that I know in Jesus. They need to know that there is no condemnation for sin if they place faith in Jesus. They need that same joy. So yes, we need to care for the least of these. We need to serve neighbors that are needy, and we are seeking to do that through a lot of our Christmas goals this season. But as we consider this a clear call to Jesus' mission, I want to be certain, according to Scripture, of what that mission actually is. Question number two Who is supposed to do missions? Is it A, duh, missionaries? Just those people that are particularly called to give their lives up to be missionaries? Or is it B, Christians who are quote unquote gifted in missions type stuff like evangelism? Or is it C, Christians, just anybody who would call themselves a follower of Jesus? I guess you could put D, all the above. Of course, missionaries like Shane that we set aside to say, here's funding, here's support, here's how we're gonna champion you and celebrate you. You go and do your work. But we are also, as followers of Jesus, what we see, this is really clear in Acts chapter 11, and we're going to look at this here in a second, but I want to bring it up now as well. As the, as the sorry, Acts 13, as the church at Antioch began to grow and began to grow and began to grow, they chose to set aside Paul and Barnabas to go as missionaries, but they were no less engaged in missions here. And in fact, it becomes a little more clear that those who stayed, stayed on purpose. They stayed out of obedience, staying and working here at Connection Church to do evangelism and discipleship is just as much participating in the mission of God. I hope you see that. Then next, what is at stake? I think this is a question worth considering. What is at stake? 
In other words, we're asking the questions, is missions all that important? And your answer can be, not much. Not much is at stake. It's not a huge deal. You know, Jesus is going to figure that out. He's got people that he can call to do that kind of thing, and it's not that big a deal. Or at worst, you, you think that it just doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if people have a relationship with Jesus. Or, and this is the answer that I would go with, is that people's souls are at stake. Eternal hope for people that are living in, in agony apart from Christ that can't make sense of the world, can't make sense of their lives, can't make sense of why they have so many broken relationships or they can't make sense of why doesn't this world make sense? We as followers of Jesus are called to help them make sense of the world by pointing them to Jesus, by telling them about the hope of the gospel. We see this clearly in Matthew 7 that Jesus is almost lamenting like, not everybody who calls on my name is gonna know me. There are gonna be people that I'm going to send away because they called on my name falsely or they didn't call on my name at all. What is at stake is the soul in each and every person that does not know Jesus. And that reality, the reality that that is the case has to shape our lives as followers of Jesus. It has to change the way that we live our lives. Last question, what am I supposed to do? I wouldn't wanna leave you hanging by any stretch of the imagination of like, all right, this mission is serious. This is called for every single follower of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. What am I supposed to do? Well, the short answer is what Pastor Brandon says all the time, which is you need to listen to God and do what he says. I can't lay out what every single person in this room and how they're meant to serve the church. But what I can say clearly from scripture is that each of us has multiple gifts and we should use those gifts to serve the church and build up the church and reach people for Christ. But I do have a proposal if you need a place to start. If you're like, I, I wanna be a part of this, I wanna do this, I just don't know where to begin and I feel so unprepared. I would, I would encourage you to follow the Apostle Paul's example and to pick a lane and run in it. Here's what I mean by that. What we see in the life of Paul is this intentionality at kind of every stage for him following Jesus. We see this in Galatians chapter one. He's laying out his credentials for the church at Galatia. And what I love here is, is, is a lot of times I think about Paul and all I think about is all the churches that he planted and all the books of the Bible that he wrote. But there was a season where, Jesus, where Paul experiences this encounter with Jesus that we see in the book of Acts. And what Galatians 1.17 says is this, I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and then came back to Damascus. Then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas and I stayed with him 15 days, but I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I write to you, I'm not lying. God is my witness. Afterwards, after three years in this encounter with the apostles, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. That region, when he goes to Syria and Cilicia, that's when he reports to the church at Antioch, kind of there in Acts chapter 11 that we're gonna look at. But what Paul is really clear in showing us is that I had this encounter with Jesus. In other words, Jesus called me to follow him. 
And he took three years to grow in his identity in Jesus. Now, the whole time he's gathering with the people of Jesus in a church, and he's also engaging the mission all along the way. But he takes three years to pick the maturity lane. I want to talk through three different lanes kind of as we wrap up of pick a lane and run in, of pick the lane of maturity or pick the lane of ministry or pick the lane of multiplication. Be intentional in one of those lanes and run hard in it. Commit to a daily level of excellence in that lane. And what we see is that the church begins to acknowledge that work and it begins to move people into a new lane. So we see Paul goes away for three years and he is dogged about growing in his maturity. And then we see in Acts chapter 11, the church at Antioch is just growing and growing and growing and growing. And what we see is that as, the, as Stephen had been persecuted and people spread out from Jerusalem, they came to these different cities and Antioch was one of them. And there present in the church at Antioch, it says this in verse 20, but there were some of them Cypriot and Cyrenian men who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Hellenists, that's Greek speaking peoples, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was on them and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Then the report about them reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. Barnabas gets there and he sees that the gospel's just exploding. People are turning to Jesus in droves. And Barnabas begins to shepherd that church and begins to care for that church. And he looks around and says, there's so much maturity happening. Who could come and run and do ministry with me? And if you know anything about this kind of uh, ancient Syrian land is that Antioch is really close to Tarsus where Paul winds up. And Barnabas goes and gets Paul from Tarsus and brings him to Antioch. And Paul, through the shepherding care of the church, begins to move from just running in the maturity lane to running it hard in the ministry lane. We fast forward to Acts chapter 13, which we read, and the local church is maturing and it's growing. And what I love is that we see this in the local church of Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, we just saw in Acts 11. Simeon, who was called Niger. Lucius, the Cyrenian. Manaean, a close friend of Herod, the Tetrarch. And Saul. Oh, and by the way, Saul was there. He just, the guy that would go on to be like greatest missionary of all time, church planner extraordinaire, and write most of the Bible. He's there. He just happens to be hanging out. But as they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I've called them to. Then after they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them off. What we remember, if you go back to Galatians, that is after 14 years that he begins to move in this direction of being sent off from Antioch. 17 plus years for the apostle Paul of running in this maturity lane, of running in this ministry lane before the Lord calls him to a multiplying type work. Now, many of you may not even know that you have been a part of a multiplying type work in the past. If you were here and you attended Connection from the very beginning of seeing this church planted, you have participated in a gospel multiplying work because a church that did not exist now does. And now that church has started four other locations and planted four other churches. And we're gonna continue to plant churches and we're gonna send out Shane Youngs and we're gonna plant more churches and we're gonna do more. 
And guys, what I want you to see is that that kind of stuff doesn't happen passively or unintentionally. I have never served under a more disciplined, Jesus-loving, Holy Spirit-seeking pastor than Brandon. And I don't think it's any mistake that he could plant a church like this because he is constantly following Jesus and seeking to grow in his identity in Jesus. And he cares deeply about the people of Jesus. And we've seen fruit from that of multiplying type work happening all along the way. And if you wanna be a part of that, I would just invite you to pick that lane and run in it. And maybe you say, I don't even know how to start in this maturity type work. Get connected to a connect group. Come see one of us as pastors or one of the leaders on staff. Find somebody that truly loves Jesus in your life and ask them, where should I even get started? But maybe a few practical application questions that you could ask are things like this. Who has access to my life? Do you think it's any mistake that Barnabas could just show up at Paul's door and be like, we got a lot going on in Antioch, why don't you come with me? Who has access to your life? In other words, who could tell me or who could tell you what, or who could tell you that you're wrong about something, insert whatever it may be, and you would receive it well? Do you have people in your life that could say, brother, sister, I just don't think you're right about that. I don't think it's right that you think that way. I don't think it's right that you behave this way. If you don't, then maybe step one is to have people in your life that could call you on your junk. Another question to ask is, what was the last step of faith that I took? What was the last time I did something because of my faith that put me in an uncomfortable place? I don't know how you could read any aspect of the story of scripture and say, the people of God have been marked by comfort. They're constantly marked by putting themselves in uncomfortable places so that they could experience the Father. Then I like this question. I think Sidney Chapman gave me this question. I think it's a great question. What would I do for the name of Jesus if I truly wasn't afraid? If you truly weren't afraid of not feeling prepared or not having the answers or uh, not knowing what to do next, if you just weren't afraid, what would you do for the name of Jesus? And if you find that answer to be something like extraordinary, I don't even wanna give you the words for it because I want the spirit to move in you to say that to you. If you find it to something that you say, there's no way I could do that. Then what would it look like to be like Paul, to move from maturity to ministry? And what could, could I just counsel you now not to disqualify yourself already from participating in a multiplying type work? With that, let me pray. We'll be dismissed. Lord Jesus, it has been your pattern over and over to use the least of us to do things for your name's sake. And God, I'm so grateful for that because I only want you to get the glory. So Lord, I pray that you would take the truths that we've talked to this morning. Pray that as we are free from condemnation, I pray that you would help us to receive conviction. God, I pray that you would show us what our next step is. Would you put people in our life that could speak hard truths. 
I pray that we would receive them and that we would leverage our life for a mission to make your name great. I pray for my brothers and sisters now as they go to be with family throughout the holiday season. Pray that no, no family complications or dynamics or anything that could happen over a complicated holiday seasons, Lord, would hinder them from seeing that Jesus, you love them and you gave your life for them. I pray as they go into their work week that they would call that place a mission field and they would leverage their lives and names and reputation and energy and meals for the good of Jesus. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Thank you guys, you're dismissed.